You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Some of my favorite podcasts are when I have on a guest who's funny, knowledgeable, interesting, and we talk on the podcast as if it's just a regular, just fun conversation of friends. So with Dan Cummins, who has the podcast Time Suck, and he's a comedian. We talk about cults. We talk about QAnon. We talk about Nexium, which was a cult where I knew some people, he knew some people. We talk about serial killers and all sorts of fun things. But most importantly, we start off with what is the most important superpower to have, which is a very important question. So without further ado, Dan Cummins. is the best superpower oh man best superpower uh i've had that argument before but it's always been like framed where it's like this or that but like out of all of them i mean i i oof, that's such a tough one i think like being indestructible maybe you okay know, like, okay wait wait let me let me be play devil's advocate 
when would you ever use that power? Uh, being indestructible? Like, do things, do things try to destruct you? When was the last time something tried to destruct you? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the paranoia. It's it's like the the one time I would need it would be so important, like a car accident. But I've never been. No one's tried to destruct me. So, like, do you ever stand in front of trains on a regular <laughs> basis, or do you like secretly desire to do that? <laughs> no, I, no, I'm pretty safe. I guess I guess if, if, as far as usage, flight or um, invisibility would be pretty sweet. Maybe flight. Okay, okay, flight. If you fly in the air, they're just gonna shoot you. Everyone's gonna say. Who's that? And they're going to just shoot you down. <laughs> Why would flight be a good power? Where, when would you use flight? Like to go to a restaurant? <laughs> flight is like uh, like eight-year-old me, just wants to be able to fly. Um, right. If I really, okay, for practical usage, practical usage, oh, man, um, I guess invisibility, but I was like, I don't want to go rob a bank or anything. I don't need to do that. I don't know when I would yeah, want like, to be and, invisible. And most of the time, you're just like sitting in your house doing nothing. Like, why would right. you be invisible? <laughs> right, right. So I don't need that. Or if, um, like, if you're in a mall shopping, do you really need to be invisible? Like if you carry stuff out of there, they would see the objects floating in the air. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess, I guess, um, oh, I mean, now I'm going to go back with Jay where like some kind of teleportation perhaps, but even on that, like I, I would say like teleport, but I can't teleport any place outside of this world and live because I can't survive in another kind of atmosphere. So that's kind of useless well, too. Why is that your only use case for teleportation? Why can't well, you just teleport to McDonald's right now and get a hamburger and teleport back? <laughs> I like to drive. I like, I like, I like to listen to the stereo. Uh, so then it's, um, I'm speeding something up that I don't necessarily detest, I guess. Uh, but for travel, but then, but then see teleportation only is great if I could teleport others with me. Like if I could take my family somewhere, that's great. But if they have to fly and I get to teleport, then I think that's just irritating. Well, that's actually, that says a lot about you that you really like me. I could care less <laughs> about bringing my family <laughs> with me. Yeah. Oh, I could teleport to the top of a pyramid just to see, or I could teleport to, um, I don't know, China, hang out a little bit and then teleport back. That would be fun. I don't need to bring my whole family with me. <laughs> I'm fine with my family where they are. Like I'll spend time with them, but I need some me time where I teleport like to England or something like that for a little while. And I don't know, speak in a fake accent and then teleport back. <laughs> right, right. It is funny when you really start to think about the powers. I'm like, they all sounded so great when I was like 13. But, yeah. but, but now much later, I'm just like, ah, now I'm starting to th like find all these loopholes and problems with them. Yeah. Like I'm the like, human like, torch like who wants to, who, like who wants to set themselves on fire just for the heck of it. <laughs> right. Like the human torch or the right. Hulk. I don't want to be the Hulk. <laughs> right. I used to want to like, like all that superhuman strength, but like, uh, what are you going to yeah, use when, that for? Yeah. Did you pick up like the images of uh, in the original action comics with Superman, the images of him picking up a car. When right. was the last time you ever felt like picking up a car? <laughs> right. Right. And then you put like, you know, into fighting some kind of like uh self-defense. So it's like, well, yeah, but then you're going to go to prison for murder. If, yeah. if somebody tries to attack you and you punch them through a wall, like they're yeah, particularly now you could say it was self-defense. You punched him through a wall. Did you really need to do that? Right. Right. You're, yeah, you're going to jail. That's murder. Absolutely. And then you would have to say, make me. <laughs> and they can't, but then what are you going to do? Like, just go on vacation? Like, what are you going to do after that? <laughs> I know that's a weird thing too. If you were indestructible and you had superhuman strength, I mean, I, I, yeah. What would anybody do with you? And then you would just be so hated. 
You'd have all yeah. these all these families of the people that you've murdered, you know, like uh, using your superhuman strength. Like you, the only thing so you could despised. do really, you could be a stunt man in Hollywood. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but then but then there would be like the trolls that were like, well, of course he did that stunt. You know, he's uh, he's indestructible. He's uh, superhuman. Like you would get weird haters, I think. It's like, well, yeah, we don't, yeah. we don't oh, want to see oh, him they, anymore. They hired Dan again, of course. Right. Like, right. We, they, he put Dan single-handedly put the rest of us out of business. <laughs> yeah, you could. He's also got super speed. He could run from like one place to another really fast. They would make so many laws against you. You wouldn't be allowed to play any professional sports. You wouldn't be yeah. like you would be banned from so many things. You would like be men trying to play women's basketball, like LeBron James trying to join the WNBA. Right. Right. <laughs> like it would just be like a ridiculous question. Right. right. Yes. So, so Dan Cummins, stand-up comedian, former host of the, you had a show on the Playboy Morning Channel. You, you have the podcast Time Suck. Yes. What other, what other stuff? Do, well, first, Time Suck's a great podcast. You, oh, you, thanks. You, your, your podcast reminds me of my podcast where you take all sorts of subjects and somehow try to have a cohesive thread go through them when yes. it's not really true. <laughs> I, have to, I have to use a lot of research, a lot of notes uh, to, to stay on point somewhat. Like the side roads are so fun, but uh, yeah, you go too far down them and then you lose focus. It can become a, a big train wreck. Yeah. And you've had like some really interesting podcasts. Like you've had stuff about Nexium, the cult. You've mm. done stuff on uh, Anonymous, the hacking crew. Yeah. Like you do all sorts of stuff. Uh, let me just get the the list uh, in front of me so I don't mis misquote anything. Um, yeah, by those... the way, I had, a I had a friend once who um, was in the Nexium cult and i didn't know that and i this was i was single at the time and i thought yeah. oh maybe this is an opportunity and then she tells me this she's in this self-help group that basically they're all in love with each other and right, stuff. right. So i figured okay th this is not really an opportunity for me even even if it's possible i don't want to do it <laughs> and but then i found out it, then this next team thing blew up i didn't even know what it was at the time nobody knew what it was at the time and yeah. she was like front and center in it and but still and still is to this day like believes in it and thinks it was all wrong and all that but anyway so let me find some of your other uh uh titles of episodes uh i like this title jameson whiskey and cannibalism uh armenian you do really important stuff to armenian genocide yeah that was interesting and uh victor frankel very interesting mm, i uh, love him uh so so your your podcast reminds me a little of uh, in a weird way of Dan Carlin's hardcore history where you do a lot of research mm -hmm. and you really, it's a, it's really informed. This is in my view, the new education is podcasts and YouTube videos. I watch educational YouTube yeah. videos or listen to podcasts every day. And, and it's great when a comedian does it. Cause then it's fun also, as opposed to boring. And that, and that's actually, it's like you referenced Dan Carlin. Like I, I love Dan Carlin, but I don't have the attention span to spend 15 hours on the Mongols, you know, it's like, and to really get into the minutia of, you know, this Khanate versus this Khanate and, and like, you know, like, uh, like lesser leaders within it and all these, I, I just yeah. want to know the bit, the, the overview. I want to know like, okay, but what countries did they conquer? How, how do those people handle being conquered? What methods did they use? How big did their empire grow? And so we'll do that lesson and try to make it really goofy with like uh, commentary on things as they're happening to, to make it memorable. And it, and it seems to really work. You know, we get a lot of listeners who say basically like, thanks for making learning fun, you know, or I, yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, I love it. Like I've been thinking actually of, of 
slightly switching the format of this podcast to like a lot of times if someone comes out with a book that I'm interested in, I really love having the author on. I get to read yeah. the book and then ask all sorts of questions. But sometimes I just want to tell a story and yeah. research something that I'm interested in and talk about it and not necessarily be part of someone's marketing plan. And which which is fine too. That's yeah. how I get yeah. guests because they won't come on otherwise necessarily if they're not marketing something and sure. I get really fascinating guests that way. But I really like your style and, and Dan Carlin's style as well. Just like Alexander the Great, just mm -hmm. really exploring that and talking about it. But I want to I want to ask you about some specific. Well, first of all, how did you get into the? How, how do you how did you get into this podcast? And how did you how do you come up with topics? Well, I I got into it. I mean, uh, and I think you'll totally relate to this, just based on your history with entrepreneurship and uh, you know some businesses not working out. You know the 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 failure rate's pretty high. I had tried. I just had a business fail an hour ago. Oh so, no! So yes. <laughs> I almost had to cancel this because I, I was debating getting depressed, but then I decided, you know what? I'm not going to get depressed. Okay. 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 Good. I, uh, I, this was, you know, time set was born out of just the failures of several other podcasts earlier and, uh, and a lot of just career failures through standup where I was constantly chasing what the industry told me was I was supposed to chase. You know, my manager was like, well, you need to like create this kind of pilot to try and sell this kind of show. And you need to go to this club and audition for these things. And like, it was very much like, you know, you got to follow these kind of trails and none yeah. of them, none of them ever resonated with me. I always liked, you know, niche stuff more than mainstream, mainstream stuff anyway. And with, and with, uh, the podcast with time suck, I had tried some interview ones. I had tried different formats. They didn't work for me. And I thought if somebody were to just pay me to do whatever I wanted, what would that look like? And I was the guy who liked college. I liked research papers. I liked to talk about, you know, what I was studying. And I also like comedy and I like being irreverent. And I was like, well, what if I could blend those things? And, you know, I, uh, my favorite conversations are about some weird subject that either I know a lot about and the other person doesn't and I get to tell them or they know a lot about and I don't and they get to tell me and I get to learn something new and interesting and so I just tried to make a podcast about that. You know, it's like, I, yeah, I love it. Like, did you did you try to incorporate kind of these types of topics in your stand up comedy? You know, uh, not really, actually, you know, uh, stand up. I, I feel I love stand up, but I always wished I could go further in certain areas that maybe the audience wouldn't have the patience for in a stand up setting. Yeah. You know, uh, now I'm able to do some of these topics in, in a limited way in my standup, like the podcast has influenced my standup, but I love, I, what I love about like a podcast versus standup is I can go so much deeper and I can go 10 minutes without trying to make it funny or 20 minutes or, you know, or I can have, uh, you know, four or five weeks in a row can be kind of comedy heavy. And then I can do something like Victor Frankel and have it be more inspirational. And I'm lucky to have an audience that will follow me on that kind of ride. And I, and I, I love the, uh, just the variety that you get to have with podcasting. It, yeah, it, it's, it, yeah. Your style reminds me a little of like the history hyena style where, mm -hmm. um, you know, Chris Stefano and yep. Giannis Papas, yep. where they um, have a topic and they, they will always produce information that I didn't know about some historical topic, but yeah. it's just, you know, it's couched in terms of, you know, that's where they're funny. I mean, I've even talk, spoken with Chris about, you know, for a, a podcast, you have you could have tens of thousands of listeners, you know, who are hearing your comedy as opposed to performing standup where it's like, you know, two or three hundred people maybe listening. Right, and, right. and so wh why not perform in front of twenty thousand people about topics you're interested in and be funny at the same time? Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
Yeah, no, it's it's mind blowing. We were doing those numbers, <laughs> numbers things the other day. We were talking about like if if the if the listing audience for Time Suck were all in one place, how, how like how crazy that is, like what it would look like. Like we're lucky enough now to episodes will get about two hundred and fifty thousand listens. Um, That's great. And and just compared to like for me, my background being excited about four hundred people in a in a club, like oh my god, there's four hundred people here. And then you think about like this huge audience that gets to listen. I don't know. It's, it's, it's cool. It's really, and you get to do it. Everybody gets to listen where they want to listen to it. And you get to tell the stories where you want to tell it as opposed to stand up where, okay, we all have to meet in this space. And you yeah. Know, yeah. And there's a risk, which, which is not such a bad thing. Like that's part of the excitement. Of so I've been doing yeah. stand up for about six years and I, and I own a part of a comedy club in New York as well. So I've seen an enormous amount of bad stand-up comedy. Yeah. Where like every single comedian goes up and is like, last night on Tinder, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. it's just, I can't stand it. And then I, I'm like you, like I would be, okay, I'm interested in what's going on with Iraq or whatever, and or what, what are to topical things that I'm interested in. Yeah. And I'll joke about them. And sometimes people find it funny. Other times people just, but everybody else is just telling like, you know, dating jokes and sex jokes and bus right. jokes. And it's not that interesting to me. And, and now with comedy too, it's really, it's a little hard. You have to travel and you have mm -hmm. to go someplace and you have to tell the owner, yeah, I tweeted about it and I, I hope people <laughs> right. show up and, and then, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Then I've been doing, I've done the Hollywood TV pitch thing yeah. and it's a drag. Yep. Yep. I mean, we, ha we, <laughs> We had the best and they were very nice, but we had the best meeting with the producer ever just a few days ago because we didn't care about the meeting. You know, it's like I spent That's the best. Yes. I spent so many years, you know, being like, oh, my God, I could really use that money. Uh, I, you know, I really I mean, we, I, you know, need is a strong word. But at the time, I would feel like, oh, I need this. And, and you're trying not to be desperate, but there is a desperation and you want it. And it's so crushing when they when they won't give it to you. And then with podcasting and, you know, these, these new mediums out there for content creation, where you can control, uh, all the monetization and you can do it in, on your own terms. Once you build an audience, well, then now nobody gets to cancel your show. You know, uh, you don't have to appease right. all these gatekeepers and, and it's so empowering that you don't need them. And so it's just so funny. It's like, I spent so many years trying so hard to get these meetings and now I spend more time avoiding them or being like, I don't have time this week. You know, I have my, cause I, cause I love what I do right now. So, you know, and, and that last meeting I told him, I'm like, well, I'm like, if we were to do a show, it'd have to be really special. It'd have to be really cool because I already have my dream job. And so you have to talk me out of that. Right. With 250,000 listens and you're not like the regular comedy podcast. Like you, 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 I'm not saying the regular comedy podcast has a inconsequential audience to advertisers but it's a more spread out audience. It's not advertisers don't know how to target in there. Whereas oh, yeah. you're going to have a, 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 you know, an interesting audience that advertisers are going to want to target. So with 250,000 listens, just to let the audience know you make a good living doing your podcast. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, uh, and, and I do think, I think the interesting thing about comedy is it teaches you how to have a very alternative perspective, which helps for many skills, not just for doing stand up or, or making a TV show, but like analyzing things like, you know, Victor Frankel or Alexander yeah. the Great from a new perspective. Right. And I think the audience does like that, where it's like, you know, especially I, I think about that in the true crime space where there's, you know, once people get really heavy into that world, 
if if you're doing a Ted Bundy episode, okay, they've heard 30 different people talk about Ted Bundy. It's like they know this, they know all the things, but but what they don't get from those other places, if you have like an interesting perspective you've honed for years in comedy clubs and things, you're gonna look at it with di very different eyes and communicate that in a in a very new way. And uh, yeah, I, I I never knew that stand up skills would ever lead to something like this, but I'm so thankful I did a lot of shitty gigs traveling. Yeah. I literally worked in all the 50 states, went so many places, you know, luckily the last couple of years, the, the gigs were great, but man, there was a lot of years before that I've been doing it, uh, all, coming up on 21 years. Oh my gosh. And there was a lot of years where it was, you know, really dealing with terrible club owners and like in the Midwest who just, um, hated themselves and hated comedy. They were, they were a lot of times they were failed comics and they, they hated you when you came in the door and you're doing these papered rooms in front of people who don't like, at least in my case, what you do. Ah, uh, it was, it was brutal, but you know, I learned a lot. What, what, what was, uh, and I want to talk about some of your episodes. What, what was your worst stand-up comedy experience? <laughs> my worst stand-up comedy experience was, it was just a unique setting, but I, <laughs> Tinsley Island is some little island in, uh, oh, it's near San Francisco. And I can't remember the river. I, I think it's the river that dumps into the bay, but um, it's a, a yacht club. It's a private island and it's, uh, yeah, this big yacht club. And I got booked somehow. It was a terrible booking. Basically, the booker saw me at the San Francisco Punchline many years ago. He was younger and he's like, oh, I like this guy. And I was doing a clean set for, I don't even remember. I think it might've been last comic standing was the audition. So I can't remember. It was a showcase. And so they bring me in for this private event for this annual stag weekend at a yacht club. And, uh, I, and I'm, and I'm probably what like, what does it mean a stag weekend? Like it was just men all, all un guys. undressing all guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All guys. Is, and I, I get there and, and you can't just drive to it. You have to be ferried over to this little Island and it's literally just a bunch of giant yacht owners. And then the staff, and then they want me to be super clean. They want me to, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever. They, uh, mostly just want me to be like very clean. I have to do an hour. And then right before uh, I go on stage, I hear they're doing a little roast and they're being super filthy. Uh, you know, the same people who want me to be very clean and they're, I hear them laughing, they're loving it. So now I feel like they've put me in this terrible situation. Like I, I, I already can't relate. I'm like, the average age was probably 65. Uh, I was poor. They were wealthy. We have nothing in common in so many ways. My comedy was weirder back then than it is now. And it was so miserable to bomb. They wanted me to do the hour and people, there was about 300 people there at the start of the show. And there was a bar, maybe it was outside, maybe a hundred feet away. Mm. And they just started getting up in packs and going over to the bar about five minutes in. By the end of the hour, there was maybe 10 people still watching the show. And out of pity, only out of pity, and God, that, that does sound, that's, that's sometimes even worse than being heckled. And then I couldn't leave. That's what made it especially terrible. After it's over, they're mad at me. The guy who brought me in is mad. Like I did it on purpose. Like I was just not funny on purpose. And then I had to wait like an hour for the ferry to take me away. So I'm just, I have to stew, watch them celebrate and have this big steak dinner. As I just sit, it was like a smaller Island, very small Island. And I, and I had nowhere to retreat. I had nowhere to hide. So that, oh, that was terrible. So, so I'm, and I'm just curious, cause I, I love dissecting comedy. Like, uh, can you, and I'm sure you do as well. Could you have, uh, made it a thing where you just, you, you're just constantly pointing out the differences between them? Like, 
you know, I you tried guys, that. You, your your bathroom is bigger than my, you know, first, and then make sure, all sure. sorts of weird parallels. You know, they just flat out didn't like my style of comedy. It was one of those things where it was truly a bad booking. And I did, mm. and I did try to make fun of myself, make fun of the differences. I talked about how it's like, you know, I, I probably, and I had like long hair at the time. I'm like, I probably represent, you know, your grandkids that you're disappointed in that they, <laughs> that they didn't work for the company like you, or, you know, like what I tried to like make fun of me and make fun of and nothing. They were buying none of it. Uh, well, I would think they would laugh at the great, you know, I'm the grandkid that disappointed you. Right. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm the guy your daughter brought home. Right, and you, right. you, you, you and your wife are crying later that night. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, you know, and this is, this is, believe it or not, this is going to segue into your podcast, but, uh, <laughs> it seems like a, an important skill of comedy that I realized kind of midstream was that the, one of the, you know, in addition to all the skills like crowd work and stage work and, and, um, you know, constructing a good joke and, and yeah. all these things, um, there's, there's the skill of finding odd metaphors or parallels. Mm -hmm. So like, I'll give you an example. Like I once heard Andrew, Andrew Schultz go on and on about how, isn't it weird how the places with the best cooking treat their women the worst? Like nobody ever <laughs> says, Hey, let's go out for some Canadian tonight. Like never, but you'll go out for like, you know, the middle Eastern food where they cut off women's hands if they commit adultery. And, and so this is like an interesting parallel that no, it's true. And, and, but no one's ever put it that way. And I find like good comedy often has that component. And that's when you say yeah, these ancillary analogies. skills that, that, yeah. that comedy, um, yeah, strong, like weird, these weird analogies. Yeah. And that's very useful. I find in podcasting. Oh, absolutely. For time suck. I do that constantly where it's like, you know, we're talking about something that happened in the 15th century and I I'm always, I'm constantly like, and that would be like, imagine if, and then I put it in contemporary terms because it makes, uh, it paints a much more vivid picture for people. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, like, like, like historical things. I'll talk about like the Mongol horde or whatever, what they were doing to some city. And I'm like, can you imagine if you're living in, you know, Sacramento or Salt Lake city or whatever, and all of a sudden the mayor's like, Hey guys, uh, we got about 150,000 warriors coming. They're going to cut our fucking heads off. Like they're going <laughs> to, they're going to rape all of our women. They're going to like, we have to like, we have to do everything we can to keep them out. They're undefeated currently. You know, it's, it's like, like, like the terror. And then if you actually saw that, start and they're, to from happen, Peoria, they're coming from Peoria, Illinois. Right. <laughs> But that's like, it's just crazy. Like, you know, to think right, uh, that that's how life used to be like for people. You know, if you're out in Nishapur, out in what, I think like present day Iran, and you're hearing like whispers of this incredible army that the world has never seen, uh, you know, before the likes of, and they've, you know, sacked three of the towns that you've traded with. And you're hearing these horror stories of they've put people on pikes and they've made a, a pyramid of people's heads and they, and they've burned everything. And like, and now they're coming for you and you can't stop it. You can't call the UN. You can't, you can't like, run there's nothing. because anywhere you run and you're going to get killed. Right. So, you know, and then, you know, I, I always wonder this. So, you know, Genghis Khan, which is, you know, he was the big military leader in the, in the Mongol hordes. He supposedly, want to, you know, we all supposedly are descended from him in one way or the other. Yeah. And because he wanted to have sex with everybody. So that's his part of his way of conquering the world. But yeah. then you wonder the guy died when he was about 70 years old. Like I did he, there wasn't Viagra back then. Like, how did he do it just physically? Like, you just have to wonder like who, what would he do 
He was just having sex with everybody. Like, how could you do that? Maybe just an especially horny guy. It's like, uh, I've, I've definitely known those guys who it's like, like my libido has definitely dropped going into my forties. Like it's not what it was in my twenties, but I know other people in their fifties, sixties who are like as horn, they seem to be as horny now as I was when I was 18. And I'm like, oh, you maybe Genghis was just one of those dudes who, you know, like uh, he could be 90 years old in the nursing home and the nurse walks by and he's like, whoa, you know, he's like, his blood gets moving and you know, his pants get a little tighter. Like there, there are those guys out there. But I even know guys in their twenties who are constantly looking for like, um, generic Viagra because huh. they're going to have so much sex over the weekend and they're 27 years old, but they know they're going to be picking up girls nonstop. At, at least they think they are. <laughs> right. And so they're like Optimistic. calling around, like, do, do you have Viagra? Do you have Viagra? Oh like they're just trying to, to get like, and then here's Genghis Khan. Just like, yeah, just like we're all descended from him because the guy was, he was like Will Chamberlain or something. He was the Will yeah. Chamberlain of his day. He mu he must have been, yeah, just very, very potent. Like his sperm count must have just been off the charts. Yeah, like everybody had sex with had a kid. <laughs> right, right. For him to actually impregnate everybody. Or I wonder, you know, like we're descended from his DNA, but what if it was like he had his sons around him a lot? So what if like, you know, he was having a lot of sex for a little while, but then now his sons are with, and now he's handing off the women to his sons. And because then we're still getting his DNA. He's not technically the, you know, the father. Maybe, maybe he had some uh, familial help. Maybe, but I, I, you know, in the history books, it sounds like it's all him, but maybe Kublai Khan played a role as well. Who knows? Right. But, right. Uh, uh, so, so, okay. So with your podcast, how do you pick a topic? Like how did you decide Nexium and then later Alexander the Great? Well, it's uh, half of the topics are picked by the audience. So on Patreon, we offer certain benefits. And one of them is uh, we, we built an app. We built the Time Suck app. And there's a voting uh, menu inside the app where people submit topics. We have somebody on staff who takes those topics and puts it into the app. And then it's kind of like Imager, where it's just an upvote, downvote thing. You, you get to do one upvote, one downvote per topic, per voting round, two rounds a month. So the first Monday and the third Monday of every month are not picked by me. Those are picked entirely by votes. And then the rest of them are, I kind of curate based around what's been picked. So like if there's a serial killer, I don't want to do another one. Or if there's, you know, something like, you know, Western Europe, historical, you know, Middle Ages, I don't want to do another one of those. I try to balance it. But the ones I pick are usually things that have been suggested. Actually, all the topics we've gotten at least an email about. Wow. And and then and then what do you do? Do you you say we? Do you, do you do all the research? Do you have people helping you do the research? Because you're they're, you know a lot of stuff about all these topics that you cover. Initially, I did all the research for the first however many episodes until we started to kind of monetize. Then I had a few kind of college students who were fans of the show volunteer. They would do initial research. Then I would take their research and I would go over it and add all my commentary and more research. Then eventually we were able to hire somebody. Now we have two full time researchers who they, I just, I've been kind of playing around with the right formula and it, for a while it was, one would start the research, hand it off to the next one, they would add some research, then I would take it over. Too many cooks in the kitchen for our uh, process that way. Now it's, they each just handle one, they each handle like two a month, hand them over to me, and then I still spend a good, no matter how much research they've done, I still spend at least 20, 25 hours going wow. over it. Cause, cause I feel like I really need to absorb it. I'll, I have a process now where I'll watch a few quick documentaries, get my head in that space. 
Then I'll read a couple articles online, maybe speed read uh, a book, and then I go into their research and then just, uh, you know, from doing it over and over, you get faster and, uh, and really immerse myself. I spoke to Dan Carlin yeah. and this is an interesting sign of these times. People like you, Dan Carlin, you know, Dan always loved history of these like obscure wars, yeah. like from 2000 years ago. And he was always kind of, I guess he lives in Montana or something. And he, he was always going on at the dinner table about the very specific details about these military <laughs> battles yeah, yeah. fought 3000 years ago. And, um, I think it was his mom or something said, you should just do a podcast about this. And he said, well, I'm not, I don't have a PhD in history. No one will listen to me. I'm not a historian. Right. And, and she convinced him fortunately that he knows just as much or more than any historian. He has his own unique non-academic perspective. Right. And I think we get to choose ourselves. Now we don't have to have the, uh, a laminated degree on a wall to do a podcast about things we're interested in. You could be, know just as much about Alexander the Great, maybe even more than someone who wrote their PhD thesis on him because they have to get so specialized oh, and yeah. niche in order to have a unique PhD thesis. And you also can be more populist. You could you could cater right, right. to what you're interested in when you're talking about Alexander the Great and what the crowd's interested in. And so I think this is, a for me, this is a better way to learn. Like, again, I learn stuff every day, not from reading a textbook, but from... Yeah watching videos or listening to podcasts or, or whatever. Yeah. It, it, and and I so mean, you chose yourself to be a historian, essentially. It, it is cool. And, you know, and, and to, you know, I was so worried about credibility. That's interesting to hear about Dan Carlin that we started putting our show notes up uh, for, for people to download on the app so they could fact check it, you know, with the links on there, like a research paper, because I wanted the audience to hold me accountable. You know, if they're like, well, where did you get your information? I want them to be able to find it. And then we have a section at the end of the podcast that's for like basically addendums or corrections, you know, potentially called Time Sucker Updates. And, you know, and if they find something that we were incorrect about, I'll call call it out and point it out and say, like, hey, sorry, we missed this. But because I'm so worried about that, we don't actually miss too much. I, I feel like I've gotten pretty good at deciphering good information from bad. You know, it's like we found some great collegiate databases out there. And, uh, you know, we make sure like with the researchers I have, I'm like, don't just trust one source. You always have to fact check it against two or three other sources. Make sure the information holds up. That, that's good. You're you, you, you do more work than me on these topics. I'm going to, I'm going to beef up my game a little bit. I have to say. Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realized, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. You did this one podcast about Anonymous, the hacking group. Yeah. And my wife actually is fascinated by this group. Like, And my son also is into cybersecurity. He's fascinated yeah. by them. What, what, uh... What did you uncover? Well, actually, I don't really know much about them. Maybe describe what they are. They're not a, a real cohesive group. You know, I'm pulling this uh, out of memory, uh, not off my notes, but I believe Anonymous started on 4chan, uh, same place that uh, QAnon started. You know, like some of these things. It was it was some people posting. If it wasn't 4chan, it might have been 8chan. It was one of the one of the chans there where it was just like a, a message board, and it was just people who were uh, initially just. The first thing they would do is a group of like, you know, kind of nerdy, angsty teens that would flood uh, these random gaming chat rooms and they would overload it on purpose just to slow the game down and make the game unusable for other kids. They were just kids messing with other kids. And huh. then and then they started. Uh, I can't remember the very first hack. But uh, one of the things they did, they would start to dox people, they call it like they would start to. um oust people for doing, you know, bad things privately, people that who they didn't like publicly. Like uh, one of the first, there was a, 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 they started in Toronto and there was a pedophile that had went after one of the teens in this kind of loosely knit group and word got around. This guy had tried to molest this guy. And, and so they ousted him. Like they, they accessed all his, his hard drive information. They shared it, but they, they ended up getting him arrested. Like they ended up uncovering other crimes. And then I think that kind of lit this fire in them. They're like, oh, wow, we have power and, and we can, and we can do things. And they started doxing like, you know, KKK leaders and different things. And, but, but what's interesting about them is I say, they, the, the strength of anonymous is you don't know who they are. And so when quote unquote anonymous takes credit for something, the anonymous is taking credit for something in 2008 could be entirely different than the anonymous that takes credit for something in 2015. Like it's just a loose collection of people who will uh, rally behind a certain cause, you know, uh, kind, of, kind of like Antifa, you know, like a, a thing. It's like people like talk about like, oh, Antifa, you got to watch out for Antifa. Like, yeah, but what even is Antifa? It's an ideal. And anonymous is kind of just an ideal. And so, you know, people who have hacking skills can decide, okay, yeah, we'll rally, you know, behind that. Uh, same with like Antifa, like somebody in this area can be like, oh, okay, I guess we'll uh, jump in on this protest or, or whatever. And that's, and I find that very fascinating about like these hacking groups because there's criminal hacking groups too. And they'll say, oh, we caught them. We took down the leader. And then, and then that same group or somebody claiming to be that group will commit another crime two weeks later. It's like the snake has too many heads. You you can't so, stop them. Do you think? Do you think leadership? So like comparing them, like you, you know, you you earlier had done a podcast on Alexander the Great, who was this great king from you know, yeah, Macedonia, three hundred BC. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, you know, Alexander the Great. His tutor was 
Aristotle. Right. And, uh, you know, he, he conquered all the way down to the Persian Empire. Uh, yeah, you, almost made it to India, think, yeah. Yeah. Do you think leadership and power have become or, or are becoming more and more decentralized in the world? Uh, because here's like anonymous. Yeah. They have power. They can get people arrested. They could hack the CIA and the FBI. And we don't even know who they are. It's all decentralized. Yeah. I mean, taking that out of the web, I mean, I I, I guess going forward, the, there it could be a little bit more decentralized. Decentral, yeah, decentral, decentralized. There we go, man. Um, I have the biggest mush mouth. I joke about it on the podcast, but um, I'm a reader. It's your beard. Your 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 beard gets <laughs> caught in your mouth. And <laughs> I have a small mouth is one thing. And then I also, I read more than I talk. And so I'm like, I'm constantly like, oh yeah, I, I know that word in my head, but I don't ever say it out loud. Um, I don't know if it'll carry outside of certain situations like anonymous, just because I think a human nature, you know, somebody wants to be in charge. I think about like, well, like, like the Bolsheviks, you know, it's like, you know, they took over, over in Russia, but it's like, okay. Then it was like a power struggle between what Trot yeah. Trotsky and Lenin and Stalin. It's like, somebody always wants to be the guy. Like even, even, even in, you know, communism where it's supposed to be like this whole communal thing, there's always one person that, that wants power a little more than the other people. And so, I, I think these groups will always kind of be anomalies where I'm sure with some of the criminal hacking groups that actually are making a lot of money that they're, you know, hijacking bank transfers and things like that. Somebody is at the end of that trail. It's just really hard to figure it out because of they're so good at hiding their IP addresses and stuff. Anonymous is kind of a, they are an anomaly because they're not, they're not profiting. They're just people. Uh, who have that, yeah, kind of like Antifa again, they, have, they share this ideal of sometimes mayhem. They don't always do noble things. That was interesting about Anonymous too. Sometimes they do noble things. Sometimes they're just dicks who just want to- Like, like when? Well, there was a kid, and I think it's pretty funny, but it is mean. Uh, there was a kid in California, I can't remember the town, I think somewhere in Sacramento, who, uh, he was very religious and he had a no cursing club like no cussing, I think he called it. And he was trying to encourage other teenagers to just not cuss. And they just thought he was a douchebag. <laughs> and so they flooded his house with porn. They had uh, like day after day for weeks, more porn is being dropped off at his doorstep. And then randomly pizza. They had like thousands of dollars of pizza delivered to his house day after day for months. And it drove his parents crazy. And then they would kind of just uh, make fun of him a little bit online, but they just harassed him for months just because they're like, ah, we, we, we think you're a dork. And what, how did it end? Uh, he, he killed himself. No, thank God. I know I was worried about that. No, I, I had to look him up. I was like, after reading the story, I'm like, oh my God, is this kid okay? And I, he's on Instagram and he's, he's still a huge dork. Uh, he's still, uh, t wearing sweatshirts to say no cussing. Uh, but he's okay. He's okay. He, he made, he made right. it through it. He made it through it. And, and now I want, I want to talk about Nexium just because I, again, have yeah, Keith a Ranieri. limited personal experience. Yeah. How did he, and again, I've read a lot about it. And I, like I mentioned, I know someone who, who was slash is in it. I mean, even though he's in jail now, uh, how did he pull that off? You know, <laughs> Keith Raniere, I mean, he's he's been pretty secretive about his early life. Like we 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 don't know be a lot of these cult leaders. We just did another one too, this guy Daniel Perez, and it's like it's tricky because uh, to find out exactly how they morphed into who they became because they lie so much. Like they're like professional liars. And so 
you know, just again, just kind of pulling from memory, he went to he went to a school in New York. He went to a college in New York, and uh, it was one I was not familiar with, but it was a pretty it's a tech college, like a poly, like a polytechnic. I can't remember, but anyway, he went there. He was a good student, but he was not this crazy gifted student. Because uh, years later, he would build this mythology that he was, you know, tested. His IQ was tested. He was one of the five smartest people on earth. Uh, we de we debunked that. Uh, there was a couple of people out there who had really done some deep investigation on him who debunked all these things. It's like, no, you sent in this one kind of t online test that they ended up saying later is nonsense for IQ because you can fill it out with 10 people helping you. Like, uh, it, it, it's, but he somehow cheated on it, snuck it in. And he did a lot of things like that. He claimed to be this uh, Taekwondo master. He was, you know, like he won these tournaments, no record of that. All the stuff he said he did, there's no records. And so he preyed like a lot of cult leaders on, you know, people who were not his intellectual equals early on. He built a little echo chamber around him. When he was in his thirties, he started going after like teen girls and, and getting them to look up to him. And, you know, and he would, he was smart enough to have people think, well, maybe maybe he was one of the uh, smartest people in the world. Like he could speak well enough. Uh, he was he worked out quite a bit. He was buff enough, I guess, where you think like, well, maybe he was a Taekwondo master. And and he got a little group of people to buy it. And then, you know, he, he got a, his was a, a lot of cults in America come out of that Judeo-Christian background and they'll manipulate Bible passages to claim that they're essentially a prophet. And he went, he went the new age route and I've looked really into the new age stuff. And there is all of this insanity. I mean, some of it's fine. You like a crystal, you think a crystal is pretty. Okay. You know, you, you say it vibrates uh, fine. I guess that's not going to hurt anybody, but then people start making these leaps of, well, no, it has spiritual powers and, and there's the hidden knowledge. There's this hidden knowledge out there. Have you ever heard of uh, Madame Blavatsky? Yeah. Okay. She uh, the, the, the theosophical yep. theosophy. Yep. Mm -hmm. She has caused so many lunatics to prosper in in recent years because there's this lineage that goes back a couple hundred years now of the Atlanteans and all all this hidden stuff, hidden races underground. The Lemurians, they're ha they're hiding underground. They're talking to the Atlanteans. They're light years ahead of us and all their technology and all this blah blah blah. And and you um, and there's all these books out there over the last couple hundred years now that somebody can tap into and essentially credit their sources. Oh, I'm I'm very learned. I've I've read 300 books. And it's like yeah, you read 300 shitty books written by other lunatics, but but they know how to talk that language and they can become really convincing and they get really deep into that and they reference some real things. They'll reference some yogi yogi principles or whatever that actually can slow your heart rate down or do different things. And they're really good at going, well, that's true, right? Oh yeah, I guess that is true with yoga. Well, and this other thing's true, right? Oh yeah, I guess that is true. And then the third thing is insanity, but but they make it sound believable. And Keith did what a lot of cult leaders do. And he just got people to believe that he had all the answers, that he was this once in a lifetime brain, that if you could just absorb enough of his teachings, you would live the most prosperous life and, and all your dreams would come true. And he got some really, some people who really wanted their dreams to come true, who weren't happy to buy into that nonsense. And then like a lot of male cult leaders, it started getting into sex and it started getting into weird sex stuff. Wouldn't they get suspicious once the sex came up? Like, you know, cause you that's would think. so associated with, you know, bad cult leaders. Right.
but they're no, they're, they're just so they're really good at like bringing you in inch by inch, you know, cause like we've studied so many of them now and they never open with, Hey, uh, I want you to give me all your stuff and I'm going to fuck you and 30 other women. They, they don't like, that's not their intro. You know, it's like they, they build that trust over years. And once they get a few people to go far enough down that rabbit hole, they let those people convince the new people. So like once he started manipulating a few women and, and, uh, and having them be his, basically his sex slaves, once he only needed to get like two or three and they were women who were successful. They were intelligent he convinced, and then they would convince everybody else. Oh, it's okay. I I know it seems weird at first, but no, trust me. I've been through it. He's it's great. It's just part of this. It'll it'll make sense later. Like I compare it to even just like religion. I remember a long time ago dating a Mormon girl when I was in high school, and I was very curious about religion then. And so, and I'm I, I I'm probably autistic the way I approach these things. I've t- done some tests. I think I'm on, I'm on the spectrum. I know this is not normal for people to deep dive when they're 17 on like a a religion and read read their books. But so I started reading the Book of Mormon. I started reading some of the other books, and then I went to the church with her and started asking questions. And I was I was talking to this not an elder. I can't remember what the hierarchy he was, but he was the head of this uh, local church there in Idaho where I was. And real quick, he had no answers. And I'm like, well, you know, it says in this book that blah, uh, blah, blah happened. But it, but then if you look, you know, 30 years later, uh, you know, in this other text, that completely invalidates what the first one said. And about a minute into it, he goes, you know what? You remind me a lot of your, my wife. She had a lot of questions too when she started getting into this. And I'll tell you what I told her. You just got to have faith. And sadly, for a lot of people, that's enough. It's like, hey, uh, all your logical, critical thinking questions right now, don't give a shit. Just believe it. And these cult- And I guess that's yeah. a loaded word, faith, because really that's the cornerstone of Judeo-Christian thinking is that, yeah, we can't explain. God is unexplainable. So somebody created everything, maybe. So you got to have faith. We're not. Right. And, and that is when, once you get into religious thinking of any kind, you do open yourself up to a greater chance of falling into a cult or something later. Like it's much harder to get an atheist to join a cult than it is someone with any kind of religious thinking, because, because once you've left the realm of realm of, oh, you have to prove this to me before I believe it. Well, then you've opened this Pandora's box and, and, you know, and it's like, you know, like uh, I was raised in like, you know, more of like a, you know, Christian culture in my town. And if you really analyze Christianity, it's like the Bible doesn't make any sense. You know, people will be like, oh my God, how do these people believe Keith Raniere's nonsense? I think, well, how does anybody believe the Bible? Like, it doesn't make any more sense than the stuff that he's saying. But more people just agree, like, I guess this is what it's supposed to be. They just, they all choose to believe the same illogical possibility. And and so, you know, it's like uh, most people who join cults, they come out of some kind of religious background. It tends to be more extreme. You know, uh, most of it is like like a lot of fundamental Christianity where it's really into modern prophets and gifts of the spirit. And, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm just blabbing now. <laughs> no, no, it's so, it's so interesting because then you do get into real lines of philosophical thought that are not cults, but they're all kind of dancing around the same issue. Like you look at Viktor Frankl's search for meaning. Yes. All these cults also about, are about a search for meaning. Yes. Viktor Frankl is clearly legit, whether you believe in everything in his logotherapy or whatever, yeah. but 
he survived the Holocaust by have, conducting, his, conducting his own search for yes, meaning. Yeah. And, you know, and, and you could say, well, you know, the, the cult leader could start with that and then diverge into something else. But, you know, it's all our, we're, we are in this quest for answers. Mm -hmm. And I think both the legit and the unlegit kind of cater to that search for for answers that we're all looking for. Right, right. Yeah, and there can be, you know, I should say too, like, you know, very healthy religions. People can have a very healthy relationship with religion. I do understand that. Uh, and, and have very healthy relationship with spirituality. And, you know, I always say like, they might be right. Uh, you know, God doesn't have to be logical. Like I think about that sometimes, you know, some cult that has this crazy notion of God, it's like, well, what if that's, what if that is God? What, what, if, what if God is some cult leader, like maniac out there in space who made the earth for shits and giggles? Um, but yeah, Victor Frankl, I mean, I guess, yeah, it, it is interesting where we all, we are all trying to figure out, or, you know, those of us who choose to kind of, uh, have an examined life, like, you know, like, why are we here? What is the point of all this? And yeah, those questions can lead you to a really fulfilling life or they can lead you right into a cult, you know, cause, cause I mean, I mean, and, and, yeah. And think about it. What if someone told you, listen, um, in my own quest for the search for meaning, um, I think there's, uh, multiverses where yeah. there's a, an infinite number of versions of you where you make different decisions and, uh, you could potentially travel to them, uh, in various place spe specific places around the universe yeah and blah blah blah. well that's quantum mechanics right <laughs> like that's phys some physicists say that so it's hard there's such a it's hard to really distinguish between the message and who's delivering it and what their motives might be you kind of right. have to know all these things and, and and that's why i guess at the end of the day it's like uh you know i believe some things that are unprovable you know, I, I, I know they might not be true, but I believe them to be true. And, and I guess, you know, with all these kind of beliefs, I think the healthy thing to do is like, as, as long as they're not getting you to do things that you find immoral, as long as they're, you know, not taking advantage of you. And, and there's things you can look for with the cult where it's like, okay, like Keith Raniere, Nexium, like any of these, do they want you to cut off associations with people who don't believe what you believe? That's a huge red flag. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, like, if you want to believe in this kind of God or this kind of multiverse situation, fine. You know, that that's totally, that's great. You know, nobody knows for sure. So why not? Um, but if all of a sudden somebody who's teaching you about these things is like, you can't hang out with your mom and dad anymore unless they choose to also believe this. That's a big, you know, like, uh, cult leader red flag. That's, that's, that should not be part of our quest for answers, you know, and cult leaders will do, um, oh God, I wish I had. Okay. But I could, but I can make an argument though. Okay. Okay, uh, you know, it, it's pretty clear you're the average of the five people you spend time with. If you spend time and everybody spend time with as an alcoholic, you might end up as an alcoholic. Mm. And in, in, in AA, for instance, they counsel people not to go back to their five closest friends after they go through the AA program, you know, cause they don't want right. to become an alcoholic again. And so it's the same thing here. Listen, we're, we're, we're going on a higher path and the people you should surround yourself with should be very careful and discerning and surround yourself with also people going on a similar higher path. So that's how they can make that argument. You you would make a great cult leader <laughs> <laughs> because that is a very, I, no, that's a very, uh, you know, valid, uh, argument. I guess I would just say, you know, in that, I mean, it's funny you bring up AA cause, uh, some people consider AA to be a cult. 
because of teachings like that, where they're like, um, why can't you find a different way to be stronger in your convictions to abstain and go ahead and put yourself in those situations? Because odds are you're going to be around those people at some point anyway. Shouldn't you develop the skills to kind of combat that? Um, but when you I say guess it, motivation's important, like yeah. the, the motivation of AA really was to cure the guy was an alcoholic and he wanted right. to help other alcoholics. So I, motivation's almost all, but then you, with, with a guy who's like a con man, like Keith Rainier or, or right. whoever, uh, it's hard to again, figure out what their motivation is. So you don't really know. Oh, I get <sighs> for me, the red flag is you got to have sex with somebody to stay in the cult. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like that seems odd. <laughs> But maybe that might be my own just moral prejudices or, or <laughs> jealousies or whatever. I don't know. You, usually, so. Keith, Keith was weird where he pulled out of New Age. Usually, the, uh, the having sex with all the cult members comes out of the Judeo-Christian kind of side. where Because then the card they tend to pull on that one is you get people to believe you're having visions from God. God is speaking through you. And, you know, I mean, in the Bible, there's, you know, uh, prophets that if you really analyze it, it's like, okay, that, that you know, uh, prophecy doesn't really make a lot of sense, but okay, that was God. So whatever, we're not going to question it. And they get people kind of going along with, well, this is what God's saying now. This is what God's saying now. And then pretty soon they're like, hey guys, bad news. I don't want to do this. You know, don't shoot the messenger kind of vibe. God wants me to really kind of, you know, procreate and, you know, carry his seed because I'm kind of God because I'm God's prophet. So God wants me to create more God-like entities. So that's why I have to fuck your wives. And I know I'm sorry. Like a lot of times they will take this attitude like, right, ah, I'm hurt. There you made, you made a great argument just then. <laughs> like that, it's like, where this is like cult training class. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, but you, but it's interesting. I, I asked this because you've done a lot of stuff on different cults and, but let, let's look at somebody who you've also covered, which I would say he's not a cult leader, but his philosophies and his way of thinking has inspired like thousands or maybe millions of people, which is you did a whole episode on, on Bruce Lee. Oh, and he yeah. also had a very mysterious life. And probably if he told his students, Hey, you all have to have sex with me. They probably would have. For all I know, he did that. I don't know. He's pretty handsome. But he's pretty handsome. <laughs> yeah, he was handsome. He was successful. Yeah. He was physically fit. Yes. Like maybe in perfect physical shape, except right. for the fact that he died in a weird way. Like how like he, I can, he, how did he die? He died because he was overworked, is is the the short kind of version of that, where, you know, like his thing was he uh raised in Hong Kong. And, and actually kind of had a badass childhood. He was, he was in like these street gangs and he would like, when he was a teenager, I mean, like, you know, kind of like legitimate, like Kung Fu fighting in the streets. Like he would, they would, he would beat the shit out of people out on the streets with like his like martial arts gang. And then he, he, his parents sent him over to America to kind of clean up his act. And, you know, he made it to America. He, uh, started, you know, became like a martial arts instructor. And then somebody saw him, uh, from, from Hollywood at one of these martial arts demonstrations, like, oh my God, you could be like this great stunt man. And you and that kind of led to him becoming the green Hornets, uh, sidekick, what, uh, Kato. I, I, it's been, yeah. it's been a while now. Um, and then, but then, and then he got on that and like, all of a sudden, like he had a bunch of fans, like kids were loving him. They were duplicating his moves and he's like, well, I should be a leading man. But you know, with America's kind of history of racism, you know, a lot of studio heads were like, sorry, you can't, you don't have the right look. And basically they weren't going to let him be, they didn't think it was bankable to have an Asian lead, uh, you know, like in movies and things. And he, he was like, well, it is blah, blah, blah. So he goes back to Hong Kong 
to build his name back there because he had been a child actor as well growing up in Hong Kong. And the the Cato role made him like a superstar, like back in Hong Kong. And so he banked on his name and he got some movies done. Those, uh, oh my God, what is it, like Enter the Dragon and kind of like, you know, those... Oh, I thought he did Enter the Dragon in the U.S., but you're saying he did well, no, it in Hong no, Kong? No, I can't remember. It's it like oh. the, the first of those kind of movies. I can't remember the lineage, okay. but he did like the first of those. And then the studios in the U.S., uh, you know, took notice. But actually, like uh, those movies, they didn't film them in the U.S. The, the, the U.S. studios just decided to distribute them and to partner with them. Mm. And But like he was maybe if he would have gotten through that one little phase where he died, he could have slowed down. But he had so many projects in the works and he was trying so hard to build himself into a star that he was uh, – I can't remember what he was taking. But he was on a couple different things to basically like stay up. And, you know, just just he was working insane hours and then where he was working um, had no air conditioning and he was in the he was editing, but they it was like really hot, really humid. He was super dehydrated. He was super exhausted and it's been too long now. I can't remember. There was a couple other little health factors, but essentially what I took away from that is he he pushed himself so hard to be perfectly physically fit to make, you know, to become such a big star and to, to, you know, he was so hands-on with the, with the filmmaking process where he was like, you know, helping organize, getting the money and also writing the script and choreo, you know, doing the choreography and doing the editing. And he just wasn't taking care of himself. He wasn't eating right. He wasn't drinking enough water. And he li literally kind of like worked himself to, to death. It's so odd, though, because I've never really heard of anyone else just dying suddenly like that in their 30s while in perfect physical shape. I mean, that's why I guess yeah. there's such a mystery surrounding his his death. But maybe you're right. If, if I yeah, if in that episode, I do remember going over the autopsy reports. There is something there. There's something where they missed something. I just can't remember what it is like right now off the top of my he head. He was probably taking like whatever the equivalent of Adderall was. Maybe he was just taking a huge amount of that. Yeah, yeah, and, and I and don't quote me on this. I mean, he, it may not have been a stimulant, but I think that there, that he he had some underlying health condition. It kind of reminds me of like um like how you can have like Hank Gathers. Remember that sad story where he just collapsed on the court? That young basketball player. You know, I think right after throwing down a dunk, this was about 20 years ago, I think. And then he's jogging back down the court and he just falls over and dies. I think he was like 20, 21 years old. He just had an underlying heart condition that nobody knew about. And he was, but it was just so shocking because he was in such great shape and he was such a good athlete. And I believe that Bruce, I just can't remember what kind it was, had some kind of underlying health condition that could have been very treated. If I remember right, it was very treatable, but he was just working too much, not getting it taken care of. Yeah. And so, so again, you, you know, so many, you, you've studied so many different things, both through history and science and modern history right now in the current world situation, obviously it's like a crazy situation. We just had a, a one-year economic lockdown. Yes. This pandemic was this huge worldwide could have been a bonding event, but ended up being really a destructive type of situation, I guess, both politically and economically and so on. Yeah. Regardless of what side you're on. Yeah. What are you, what are you worried right now about in life, in, in society? What do you worry about? I, I worry about the, the, frankly, the media continuing to polarize everybody into marketing kind mm. of camps where it's like, and I, and I try and remind people of that, where it makes it really easy to sell soap or whatever to people. If you're like, if you can 
put them in in little camps of like the right and the left especially and 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 also for the for ratings you know where uh you know like MSNBC or CNN some some place on the left uh you know Fox News and what the Breitbart stuff on on the right like they know how to play to a demographic they know how to get like dedicated listeners if they just preach certain kinds of messages and and then the more they do that, the more their kind of audience will believe those messages. And then to keep them interested, you know, they need to get more extreme. And they need to have, you know, like, and it's, and then you combine that with like the clickbait society we live in right now, where there's so many different options out there for what to listen to, what to read, uh, what stands out, extreme headlines, you know, um, uh, titillating kind of news. And if you and if you look at that stuff, if you're on your computer long enough, like people were during the lockdown and they're home more, and and now with the algorithms out there, where it's like once you start to read a certain kind of article, your computer knows or your you know your browser or whatever Facebook, oh he this person likes this, let's give them more of this, and so the, yeah. these echo chambers have been created now, and we've become so divisive and so angry and emotional and worked up about things that for most people, it probably doesn't even matter like they don't even know what they're angry about anymore like i like i'm pretty in the middle and my town where i grew up is very far right and there's all these uh it, it kills me there's all these things against socialism in in my town like ah, oh, damn socialists uh no socialism we're not gonna have a socialism in america uh <laughs> and then like for me i'm actually doing well enough i don't need socialism i you know i can get private health care i can do these things but a lot of the people in my town are not doing well. They're in the bottom income bracket. And, and, I, and I, it's just so sad to me where I think like, oh, wow, they really did a number on you. They have made you hate the things that would serve you the most. Yeah, and it's it's funny because they might not even know. I find a lot of times when it's been a media-generated frenzy that they might not even know what the word socialism means. Right. It's just a code word. Yep. It's something they don't want to have happen. It's something that, you know successful people don't want socialism. So no socialism. Yeah. It, remi it, it reminds me of sports where it's like, if you love the the Yankees and it's like, and you, I don't know, who do the Yankees hate? I <laughs> like who, the uh, Red Sox, the Boston Red Sox. Okay. The Red yeah. Sox. Yeah. The Red Sox. And so, so then you just hate the Red Sox. <laughs> you just hear something about the Red Sox. You're like, you know, the like Pavlovian or Pavlovian condition almost to be like, boo, I don't like it. And they've done that with these key words. And I worry about that going forward. I, I worry that it's just going to get yeah. worse. And we're and we're yeah. gonna get in these two camps and not talk to each other anymore and just yell slogans at each other. I, I agree with that. And it, and it's weird how it comes up. Like I did a, a post the other day where I mentioned how there was there's there's throughout the past, let's say 50 years, there's been a lot of media create generated fear. Like the first SARS, we thought maybe this was gonna be a pandemic that would literally wipe out the earth. Then there was <laughs> right. swine flu, avian flu. There's uh, you know the 2008 financial crisis, the headlines were it's the end of capitalism. So there's been a lot of right. fear generated over the decades. So you just have to be skeptical when everybody, when somebody says the entire world is going to end because of X, because no one's ever been right before on yes. that. And, and so I, I, yes. I made this post and then someone commented, I, I didn't know you weren't pro science. And I'm like, what? first off, Pro-science is a media-generated code word. Yes. Science itself is about asking questions and being skeptical. Yep. So yes, I'm very pro-science by being skeptical. Yeah. And But just the fact that someone said this is like, it's a media-generated buzzword 
that you know but nobody will listen to that right if you say that because then you're not also being anti-science again by questioning what the word pro-science means and uh, it's it's frustrating so much nuance has gotten lost you know it's just it's just yeah. it's, it's so much easier just to like oh these are the 10 talking points of the side that i'm supposed to be on and i just always hit those okay then i can turn my brain off and just say those things you know like like with the with covid it became this weird political thing where if you're wearing a mask and you're concerned about the disease, then you're liberal. And if you're not wearing yeah. a mask, then you're not. And it's like, for, for example, like for me, for me right now, I haven't worn a mask in a couple months, not because I'm anti-science, because I had it. I had two shots with Pfizer, you know, like that. Um, I'm not in a demographic based on a lot of research that I did about it where I'm vulnerable. I'm not hanging out with anybody who's vulnerable. The case counts in my area are low. So I, appro I, I approach it with reason. You know, where it's like, for me, I am more worried about getting in a car accident currently than I am about COVID. Now, early on, when the case counts were higher and I was worried about, you know, flattening the curve because I didn't want the hospital beds to get uh, overflowed. And then people who just need like, you know, an appendicitis situation resolved are now dying because they can't get medical care. I wore a mask everywhere. I washed my hands uh, like a crazy person. You know, it's like I followed the logic of the situation. And, and, I, and it's just sad that more people don't seem interested in doing that. They, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Like, like people didn't realize that statistically, why would it be the case that everybody on one side of the political spectrum believes in the exact same thing on 50 different issues that have nothing to do with each other. Right. And on the opposite side, everyone agrees, uh, thinks of the other thing, the opposite on the exact same 50 issues. Like yeah. the statistical odds of that yeah. would be impossible correct but like somehow if, if you if like hydroxychloroquine or early on was one of those if you if you think about trying a drug that's been used for 70 years for malaria right uh you're a, a, a right winger you're you're a racist if you use hydroxychloroquine <laughs> and if you don't yeah. uh if you don't want to use hydroxychloroquine then you know you're this you you you're all about blm and, right and protesting and so it was just crazy these things that were somehow correlated with each other uh, that had no statistical relation whatsoever. Yeah. And so, yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. I, I worry about that as well. Like that, that actually kind of makes me not, I, I've sort of taken a break from social media largely because of this, because yeah. you can't say anything oh. without people getting upset. Right. I mean, so, it, it is, I, I wonder if it'll sway the other way. I mean, t things tend to, right? Uh, things tend, the pendulum tends to swing back, but it, 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 I wonder if we're just in the beginning stages of, this is the first time in human history when we've been dealing with, uh, you know, like these algorithms from like Facebook and things. We've been yeah. dealing with so much media saturation and, and, and you're dealing with, you know, hearing uh, like the vocal minority all the time. I, I encourage people all the time. It's like, OK, if you're on your computer and you're getting angry and it seems like the world is falling apart, uh, go downtown and just walk around. See real people. Hear what yeah. real people are talking about and see if it compares to what you were experiencing of the world on your computer. I find that it does not compare. You know, on the computer, you're hearing like this small group of angry trolls for the most part who are really vocal and, and, and really polarized in their opinions. But then if you go out in the world, it's like, oh, that's right. Okay. There still is a lot more moderates. There still is a lot more people who actually do think they just don't post as much about it. I don't know. We're just in such a weird phase right now of what is, what is real? Is the, is the, but, is the computer real is, I don't know. But that's why I really appreciate like podcasts, like your podcast time suck because, okay, let's just take a step back from that and let's learn about Alexander the great, who was 
an important part of world history and there's lessons to be yeah. learned and and so on. Or let's learn about, you know, all, all the different topics you ever. Let's learn about Viktor Frankl because he had something interesting to say yeah. and he survived the Holocaust. How did he survive it? Let's learn about the Armenian genocide. Let's learn right. about these real things that, you know, what are the dark ages? Most people don't know what the dark ages are. Right. When did they occur? I find I find that most people don't actually know basic history because when we learned in high school, we had to memorize things and that's often not the best way to learn. Right. Uh, like I always do this experiment where I ask people, when was uh, Charlemagne, the emperor of, you know, one of the most important emperors or kings in Europe, when was he born? And by the way, even me asking this every couple of years, I forget and I have to look it up again because it's it, 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 nobody knows. And no, I, I ask people who major in European history, let's say in college, and they can't tell me within 500 years. And sometimes I can't answer within 500 years, even though I'm <laughs> constantly asking people of this. So it's it's good to have resources now like podcasts yeah. and, and videos and so on, where we do learn these things through a storytelling mechanism so we and, and an entertaining mechanism where we really learn them as opposed to kind of studying it for a quiz and then forgetting right. it. Right. And so I, I appreciate Time Suck and, and hardcore history and Freakonomics. I think you're all like in the same category of like, let's pick really fascinating topics that are important and have nothing to do with whether something's pro-science or not. Right, right. But what's cool though is those ancient, like, you know, nothing's new under the sun kind of thing. You can read, learn something from the 13th century that will apply so much to the current day and, you know, and extrapolate these great lessons where it's like, we've got to, we've got to see now, you know, civilizations rise and fall. So we get to learn from them. We get to see like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Or, oh, that's crazy. What they were dealing with in Rome under this emperor is is very similar to what we're dealing with under this presidency or, you know, whatever. Um, I love it. And and on Charlemagne, my brain won't let go of it. I, now I'm trying, is it, is it, uh, is it mid 13th century? See, that's the answer most people give. And, and by the way, I'm not being critical. No, no, no. I, was I can't remember. To I, I was literally speaking to somebody the other day who majored in European history. Yeah. Like that was what he studied in college for four years. And of course we learned it all through high school. Charlemagne was born in 754 AD. No way. That's way earlier than I remember. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Wow. But see, but I, sometimes I have to look it up. Sometimes I, even after doing this for years, I do this in talks a lot. I will think to myself, was it 900? Was it a thousand? <laughs> like, and I've even know the answer. Um, or another great question is who was the 15th president of the United States? Was it James, James Buchanan? You're right. Because, and most people don't know though, because they know Lincoln is the 16th. Right. And here's James Buchanan. I don't know why I know was, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, James Buchanan was probably caused the civil war because the civil war, you know, started immediately after his term was over. Right. I mean, you know, between him and Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, the guy was the ruler of the world for four years. Nobody knows who he is. That's so funny. And yeah. also probably America's first gay president. Um, oh, I don't, is, I don't. Most people suspect. I don't know enough about him. Yeah, he was one of the guys who was not married, right? Uh, yeah, I think he might have been the only the one. only not one. Married. That's right. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's such an atypical thing in like American culture, you know, for those kind of offices. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I You know, but a lot of people, like even Abraham Lincoln back then, a lot of people like slept in the same bed with, men so that sometimes that's used as evidence that they might have been gay or not but who knows yeah but yeah. um <laughs> who knows <laughs> but uh anyway uh uh dan cummins uh uh time suck such a great podcast i encourage everyone to listen to it dan thanks so much for for coming thanks, on James. my podcast Thank you. i know you're a busy guy and uh uh 
people could find your podcast wherever you find podcasts, or you could go to your, your the website, uh, which is timesuckpodcast.com, or you're on Patreon. Is there a special name on Patreon they should look for? Uh, they could just look up Time Suck. Yeah, they just look up Time Suck on okay. there. And Dan, anytime you want to come back on the podcast, this was so much fun. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, and, and I'm going to ask your advice because I want to start going into this format where I just find stories that fascinate yeah. me. And I present the facts and or what I think are the facts and and do it in this. You I know, think you do great like your style. I think you do great at that because you're so passionate about you know what you believe in and you're uh, you know very intelligent, very well spoken. Uh, you know, like just pick pick the topics that whatever whatever you find most interesting, those will be your best episodes. Yeah, I I think that's true. And I, cause I remember like a lot of times I would have on like some random celebrity who wrote an autobiography and I'd be so bored during the podcast. And, and, and then what would happen is those pocket, those episodes would have the fewest yeah. downloads. And I'm wondering like, how would people know in advance? But I guess what ends up getting the most downloads are when you're, when I'm excited and the story's yeah. interesting and then they share it with their friends. That's exactly it. So that's exactly, passion is contagious. It, it'll bleed through and you know, the people who hear it, you know, like it, it's, I, I consider it almost kind of like magic. It's like, they won't even necessarily be able to articulate why they like it so much, but if there's just something special because you put something special into it and then that'll make them want to share it with their friends. So yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I agree and, and time suck does it. So once again, Dan, thank you for coming on the James Altucher show and, and sharing your experiences. And do you still do stand up comedy? I'm going to start again, uh, in August. And so it's, it'll be different. I took a year, you know, year and a half off. I'm excited, but, but it's, it's weird for me now to be a podcaster first stand up second, which is brand new. So, uh, I, I worry, can I dedicate enough time to stand up to be as good as I want to be and, and grow with everything else I have going on? I hope so. I'm, I'm very excited to give it a shot. Uh, it, it was, it was interesting. Like I, when, when the lockdown started to lift in different States, I started doing stand up again okay. and a, after like a five, six month break, I, I was rusty at first yeah. and the comedian I performed with, who's a, a, a legendary comedian, he he was also rusty. Okay. Uh, uh, so there was a little bit of that as you come back, yeah. and also the the environment was different because of COVID and, yeah. and politics and everything. But overall, it was a good experience. But like you, I I it was a lot of energy. You have to travel now right. to go to places that are open. And uh, I I I've been more recently deciding, you know, I'm going to focus on the podcast and things like that, where you have a bigger audience and I can use those skills and, yeah. and so on. So I, it's it's that approach I'm starting to take. But it's, it's stand up is definitely like such an amazing skill to learn and and be a part of and yeah. a great community and so on. Yeah, I'm, so. I'm I'm fingers crossed. But luckily, we live in a world now where it's like you know uh, that's there's there's a lot of different options. That's just one of many. And so we're pretty blessed that way, you know, where we have so many different outlets for our creativity. So I love that, you know, you can, you can make money on the road or you can make money in your apartment. You know, how, how, be how beautiful. I like the latter. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't like to ever leave. Ah. Like the pandemic lifestyle is my lifestyle. So, <laughs> well, that's, that's good. That's good. It worked, it worked out for you. Yeah. It's, uh, for some of us, uh, maybe more introverted types in certain ways. It's, it's a nice thing. Well, from one introvert to another, thank you once again, Dan. Thank you, James. And from, from the Time Suck podcast. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you.